Um, hey, if you have your, your Bibles, open them up to um, Hebrews chapter 11. We're, we're in a series called Questions God Asks, and each Wednesday night we come together for a time of worship, a time of study where we want to live in this story. We want to immerse ourselves in this broad story of what God is doing in history and see our own stories in light of it. Um, and we take communion and we connect with one another. So I want to read um, a section from um, Hebrews chapter 11. Before I do that, though, um, I want to ask you a question. How many of you know that this is, I looked high and low for um, uh, the Oxford English Dictionary. I could not find it. You have one? Well, where were you? I sent emails out. I'm like, does anyone have the Oxford English Dictionary? And like, no, I, I, went, I called the library and they're like, you can come and look at it. You can't take it. It's like they'd slap my hand. So this is not one. This is the American Heritage Dictionary. But heard this really fascinating story. You ever heard the story behind the Oxford English Dictionary? You're probably thinking, no, and I don't care to. That sounds very boring. It's actually super, super interesting and cool. It was, um, it was in 1857. Up until this point, think about this. Up until this point, there was no record, complete, like, you know, companion record of the English language. There was no dictionaries. And so there was a committee of people centered in Oxford, England, and they, they said, we need to find someone to edit this to be about it. And so they found Sir James Murray. He was a doctor. He was a brilliant linguist, a scholar. And they said, we would like you to be the editor of the English language and so it's rather daunting. He was a brilliant man, but he did the first, um, you know what, you know what crowdsourcing is? is? Is that the phrase? Am I using it correctly? Crowdsourcing, where you sort of like use other people, <laughs> free labor. So this was the first like crowdsourcing effort maybe that I know of. And so he, he sent out to different places around the world and just said, I, I need submissions. And so he asked brilliant philologists and, and said, um, I need you to submit words, but here's what you need to do. You need to go back and read in every era of the English language, find every single word in the English language. And I want you to submit the word, submit the definition, use the word in a sentence, and then you have to cite the earliest use of that word in English. Can you imagine? It, it, it took like 70 years to do. Okay, long, long time. What was fascinating though was so people would submit, dozens of people would submit some um, examples, but he discovered that one man, Dr. W.C. Minor, uh, William Chester Minor, had submitted like 12,000 individual pieces of paper, and they used all of them. And there was like, who's this W.C. Minor? Who is this guy? What? Who is this brilliant person? And he had, he had the background. He was, he was a doctor. And so he was put onto the team. And again, every single one of his was used for the Oxford English Dictionary. And so toward the, after, after the end of compiling them all, at least, um, the, the, the committee, uh, which was, again, kind of led by this Sir James Murray, wanted to go honor uh, Dr. W.C. Murray. And so they went to go find him. And um, Sir um, James Murray sent him a letter, said, I would, I, would, I would like to meet you. Would you please come? I would like to host you at my home. And he received a letter back from Dr. Minor that said, uh, thank you so much for the, for the invitation. Unfortunately, I am unable to come to uh, you, but you are more than welcome to come and see me. And so Dr. Murray said, oh, absolutely, I'd love to do that. So he, he 
found his address, went to, walked up this long road as it's described, these beautiful poplar trees on both sides, and he walks up to this big home, two big green doors, goes inside, and he's ushered up this marble staircase by this servant into a room on the second floor, goes into the room, and there's a fireplace, and the glow of the fire is, is lit, and there's a big, huge desk right in the middle of the room, and there's a, a, a man sitting behind the desk, a person of obvious importance. And, and so um, Dr. Murray walks up, and, and he says, uh, excuse me, um, yeah, D- Dr. Murray walks up and says, hello, um, Dr. Minor, uh, I am Dr. Murray. I am the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary. It's, it's very nice to meet you, Dr. Minor. And there was an awkward silence. And the man stood up, and he said, I- I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not Dr. W.C. Murray, I am the superintendent of the Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum in which you're standing right now. And he said, uh, the doctor you were asking about is our longest resident. And then he informed him, the, the, the doctor, the man you're talking about, yes, he does in fact have those credentials, but he is an American, he is a murderer, and he is uh, an absolute lunatic with no hope of any restoration. And this was the guy who made this huge contribution to the Oxford English Dictionary. I bring that up because the passage we're going to read in Hebrews, to me, when I read the Old Testament, well, many places, but especially the Old Testament, especially the patriarchs, and realize how they've contributed to God's story, it feels a little like this. (laughs) You know what I mean? Hebrews chapter 11 is called the the, the, uh, Faith Hall of Fame. If you've ever read chapter 11, it's just, it's just a list of, by faith, Adam did this. By faith, Noah did this. By faith, um, Abraham did this. By faith, so on. And it goes through from Samson all the way down. You know, it's just saying, this is how the people of faith live. Like, by faith, meaning trust in God, they, they did certain things, okay? So, so, like I said, this is the feeling I get when we read this, but this will introduce our character. And he's a little bit like... Dr. Murray, I think. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and 10. First, we, we start with the man that we're going to be talking about, his grandfather. We read Hebrews eleven eight. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place that he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. But by faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the, this is key, like underline this, of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And then jumping down to verse 20, because it goes on about Abraham talking about his life. But then it gets to, it says, uh, verse 20 says, by faith Isaac, another character, uh, his son, uh, blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. And then verse 21, by faith, and here's the guy we're talking about tonight, Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, this is going to like bring us to the very end of his life, but we're going to go back to the beginning. But this is the end, and it's going to feel like, how in the world did you get here? When he was dying, he blessed each of Joseph's sons, and he worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. This is, he's, he's old, he's leaning on his staff, and it says, he worshiped God. Oftentimes, you'll hear 
sermons or messages in church about, you know, we'll read through the book of Genesis or whatever it might be, and we'll look at Abraham, and, and it'll be like, well, here, here's how to conduct yourself in business. Here's how to parent. Like, usually, these stories are not meant to teach us how to conduct ourselves in business with ethics or how to parent, or because they're so stinking dysfunctional. Like, they're really screwed up people. And so they're not there as these moral Aesop's fables, like a, like a moral lesson. And so as, as I read scripture that way, I completely miss what's going on. Um, if you have a, uh, inside your bulletin, I think, you have a little, did you see the little diagram thing in there? This will kind of clue you in a little bit. A little overwhelming. Don't be overwhelmed. So if you turn that kind of sideways... And if you can see, it's small print, sorry. Is it bright enough? Can you see? Okay. Okay. Um, th this is the family. So if you look at, let me just pause and say this about, okay, book of Genesis, that's what we're going to be in because that's where the story resides. Genesis, if you want to even write down, Genesis 1 through 11 is the history of humanity. It's just people in general. But then in chapter 12, this is like part two. If you were going to break the book of Genesis in two volumes, you would do it right after chapter 11. Because chapter 12, it's specifically about one people group. And, and, and to kind of like orient us to kind of the big story. Next week, we're going to be talking about Adam and sort of the part one. So we're sort of, sort of starting in the middle. But, but here's, here's kind of what's going on is go back to pages one and two. And we'll, again, we'll talk about this more next week. Pages one, two, that God creates a space, land, right? He calls it the Garden of Eden. So he creates space for them. And, and the very first command is be fruitful, multiply, have family, right? And they have his, his blessing. You have my blessing on you, okay? Page three of the Bible, what happens? Yeah, they rebel, the fall. And those are the very things that are in question, Everything's broken, long story. But finally, God goes and he picks Abraham. And he says, I'm going to give you a land. What does that sound like? <laughs> yeah, the garden. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you do a great nation. What does that sound like? Be fruitful and multiply, right? And then, and then the last one is, and I'm going to bless you. And through you, here's the more important part, through you, I'm going to bring back my blessing that was lost in the garden to everyone, the whole world. All nations, but I'm going to do it through you. Does that make sense? So here's the thing. If you read the book of Genesis, starting in chapter 12, the whole, everything from 12 on, it's about one of three things. It's a story about land. It's a story about family. Or it's a story about blessing. That's why. That's why the whole rest of the book is all about that. So every chapter story you read, it's going to have something to do with one or all of those things because it's about God restoring what was lost on pages one and two. And so God picks Abraham and he says, so remember, here's the promise. Remember I said underword that word promise? The promise is through you, Abraham, I'm gonna bring the one, uh, Eve's seed, chapter, remember you know, page three? Through you, I'm gonna bring back this person and he's gonna somehow bring back my blessing to the whole world. It's vague, okay, but it's this promise. So when you look at this picture right here, here, here's the family line, okay? So you see Abraham and Sarah. They have their son, Isaac. They also have another son, but this is tracing it through Isaac. He marries Rebecca. And then Isaac and Rebecca have two children, right? What are the names there? 
Esau and Jacob. So when someone says the patriarchs, do you know who they're referring to? Yeah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So if someone talks about the Old Testament patriarchs, that's a phrase that that people will use. They're meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the patriarchs. Their wives would have been the matriarchs of the community. And then you see below them, someone was asking me earlier, wait, I thought there were 12 tribes, and there's like 14 people here. Um, Basically, you have to cross out Levi because he doesn't get land. He becomes the Levitical priests. Priests don't have a portion of land. And then Joseph, he gets double portions, so it goes to his two kids, Manasseh and Ephraim. So there's the 12. Have questions about it later, come up and ask me. It's not important for tonight. Um, But it's maybe a little confusing. So this is what we have here. And of course, you see there, Jacob has, he'll have two wives. We'll talk about them in a little bit, Leah and Rachel. And then the women next to them, uh, Bilhah is Leah's like servant. And then Zilpah, if you want to draw an arrow or whatever. Excuse me, I said that wrong. Zilpah is Leah's servant. Bilhah is Rachel's servant, Okay. These are all the characters we're being introduced to, so I'm giving you a little map right now so it's not terribly confusing. But you still might go, this is terribly confusing. Okay, that's all right. That's right. But, okay, so we know um, if you read Genesis 15, Genesis 22, it's God saying, Abraham, great name, great nation. It's the land, family, blessing, okay? And then you get to chapter 26, and he says it to his son, the second patriarch, Isaac, Great, you know, there's going to be land, there's going to be family, there's going to be blessing. The question now becomes, this is our question tonight, even if you want to like draw a little question mark over the names Esau or Jacob, who's the next guy? Who's the blessing, meaning the one through whom God is going to carry on this promise to get back to what was lost on page three? You with me? Okay. So that's, that's our story tonight. All these stories, land, family, blessings, and we see why. Real quickly, throw a map up on the side screens here. You can all read those words, right? Yeah. Um, do, you see, do you see the four red dots that have a white circle around it? Can you at least see that? Okay. The majority of the, like Abraham, the, you, you see the Dead Sea? Kind of where it says Dead Sea. Just go like a couple inches to the left. That first dot there, that's Hebron. This is where Abraham is buried. This is where he lives most of his life. He comes from another country, but that's, this is where we're talking about. So if you've ever been to Israel, or if you're going to come with us in our trip here in March, we'd love to have you, we're going to go down and visit the Dead Sea. And we go and swim in the Dead Sea and all that stuff. And as you look to the west, you, it's, just, it's just desert. But you realize, like, this is where much of this was taking place. So we might refer back to that a little bit. The one above it is Bethel. We'll talk about that a little later. The one on the very top is on the edge of the Jabbok River. And we'll talk about, because Jacob's going to end up at the Jabbok River, and he has a huge moment. That's where our question is experienced, just to kind of give you a general idea. So Genesis chapter 25, if you have your Bibles, open them up or turn them on. And let's read uh, Genesis 25, verse 19. This is the account, it says, of the family line of Abraham's son, second patriarch. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, and Aramean, the Aramean from Padan Aram, Aram, excuse me, the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Uh, Isaac prayed 
to the Lord, to Yahweh. He's using the covenant name Yahweh there. On behalf of his wife, why? Because she didn't have any children. And the Lord answered his prayers, and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. And it says that the babies, plural, jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. It doesn't tell us where she might have gone to a holy site, to a shrine. There aren't prophets yet in this point. There's no temple. Where did she go? We don't know. Maybe she just went into her own room and prayed. But she, she, she went and inquired of the Lord. And Yahweh, Yahweh God speaks to her. This, this oracle comes. And it's, we read this, verse 23. The Lord said to her, and listen to this. She asked about two babies. And he answered a different question. He said, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. And the older will serve the younger. What what he learned from, what Rebecca learned from this oracle is that this uterine struggle going on inside her... It was just the anticipation of a much more difficult situation. And remember, he says, not necessarily just between two people. It's going to be between two people groups, like two nations of people. And God says that the older one will surrender his right of primogenitor. Primogenitor is, in the ancient world, the claim that the oldest firstborn son has has an exclusive claim to to either all or the vast majority of what mom and dad have that 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 he's he gets to carry on the line as opposed to any girl children any um younger siblings or illegitimate siblings it's it's the first male child and um one thing that's really interesting when you so the law of primogeniture was like it's just part and parcel of the water you swim in in the ancient world. And it's interesting that God continually goes against it. You know, with Abraham's son, same thing. Um, with this, David, remember he selected his king. Which son is he? It's not the oldest, right? That, uh, that there's this continual, God's sort of subversing, he's, he's inverting and turning around cultural assumptions, but what's interesting is he doesn't just always come out and say, and this is, I think, a broader principle, that's not a good system. It's actually an unjust thing. God doesn't come out and just say, don't do it. He just shows them again and again, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. <laughs> he's, he's slowly revealing this concept of that's not necessarily the way that it's, that, that's not justice. But it's also revealing that God is in charge of the story, and it's not just one darn thing after another. History is not one darn thing after another. God's hands, like in a glove, are deeply, intricately, in, like interwoven in human affairs. Even though it looks like it looks really natural and messy and chaotic, God's involved. And I think there's something there for our own lives too. We realize that when we look at our own lives, there are so many things. We'll see this in Jacob's own life. So many things that are like kind of messed up, pretty broken. And yet God, can st- he's still saying, I'm interwoven there. I'm absolutely interwoven, despite everything that happens. And we'll see how that really comes out to play here later on toward the end of the story. <clears throat> Verse 23, it says, the people will be um, 
excuse me, one people will be stronger than the other, the older will serve the younger. Now, this is a prophecy that isn't fulfilled until centuries later. Esau's descendants are the Edomites. You know, Edom is a location. If you look at that sort of the Dead Sea, the area to the right of it, that's Edom, that that becomes Edom. Um, In fact, we we read in um, 2 Samuel 8, it says, all the Edomites became David's servants. So years and years and years and years later, when Israel comes back into the land and they have, to, they have to overthrow and take over the Edomites. And so this is this reference to that, but again, it's not fulfilled until much, much later. And um, verse 27, we see that the boys, right from the start, have very divergent personalities, personhood, this personas, everything about them is very, very different. Verse 27 says, the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. And their names are even, um, it said that when, when, when uh, Esau was born, it said he came out and he was red and it looked like, a, like a, his whole body was like a hairy blanket, basically. <laughs> they said this, can you imagine your baby coming out looking like that? Um, and then we're told that, that uh, and so he, he's named Esau, which is somehow maybe a play on words of red or hair. There's some lack of clarity there. But um, Jacob comes out. What's, what's fascinating is we read that when, when he's born, um, what, what happens? Yeah, it's, so the first baby comes out, and as his last limb comes out, there's a little hand on the ankle. Jacob is holding on to his, and so oftentimes in the ancient world, they would give you a name that either had something to do with your God, it might have something to do with the circumstances of your birth, what was going on at the time. And sometimes, even knowingly or unknowingly to parents, your name had something to do about what your parents wanted for you in life. Sometimes those sort of things would come true, and sometimes they, they wouldn't. And so they, they named him so there's Esau, who's red, hairy, ruddy, whatever it might be, and then Jacob is the heel grabber. And heel grabber, while it literally meant something, um, similar to how we would use it, if someone says something like, uh, oh, man, he tripped me up, right? What do we mean by that? Yeah, they, they cause you to kind of mess up or stumble or, you know, someone cuts in on you, right? We have similar language to say someone is trying to supplant me, Someone is subversive. That's all kind of the connotative meaning of this name, Jacob or Jacob, is you're kind of a, you're like a trickster. You're someone who's, you know, should I trust a Jacob? Probably not. Can't trust those Jacobs. And so um, in uh, Genesis 25, verse 28, it says, Isaac, um, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. This is so sad. But Rebecca loved Jacob. So you see, these are really different kids, right? Esau's like, he's like, if, if Esau were going to go to the store, he'd go to like the pro bash shop, right? Like that's where he loves to hang out. He's just hanging out in there looking at the guns and then you want to buy, you know, he's like, he turns on the TV, he's watching Duck Dynasty, okay? <laughs> Jacob was going to go shopping. He's going to go out to Bed Bath & Beyond. You know what I mean by that? Like he's like, ooh, get some new cooking utensils. This will be nice. Like totally, totally different. Dad likes Esau. Let's go to the pro bash shop. Jacob, we say, or we learn that, that it said he hung around the tents. It means he's, he's a homebody. He's like, he's kind of mama's boy. So they're very, very different. But what's so sad here is right, right off the bat, any potential problems that Esau 
and Jacob might have with each other, it is fueled, it is absolutely fueled by two unwise parents. And I know many of you have experienced that in your own life where, you know, where you would say, man, favoritism was really destructive to maybe a family dynamic that you were a part of, even, even in careers and jobs. If you're a manager, you better think real carefully about, do I show favoritism to my employees? Like, do I do that? Because we all have things that we like kind of better, right? We have affinities toward things. But we need to live really carefully saying, am I doing that? Because this is one of these examples of it's absolutely corrosive to team whether that's family team or work team or whatever it might be, that that will absolutely destroy a team. And it, it does right here. And so right here, there's the seed planted of, oh man, this is not gonna be good. This is not gonna be good. Um, and so again, as you look at, you know, even in your bullets in those pictures, you can see which dad favors Esau and Rebecca favors Jacob. Verse 29, we read this. Um, once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He, he said um, to Jacob, quick, let me have some of the red stew. I'm famished. That is why he's called Edom, we're told as a side note. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. He says, look, I'm about to die. Esau said, what good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, no, 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 swear it to me, like a covenant of formal thing. So he swore on oath selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave, gave Esau some bread, some lentil stew, he ate and drank, and then got up and left. So Esau, it says, despised, meaning like had contempt for, just didn't really value, didn't respect it, his birthright. Um, so f- first thing that's at stake, so the, essentially that there are three sort of pictures the author wants us to see of, of Jacob and Esau interacting, and there's this, something's weird about the relationship, the first one is at birth. That's where the first round, he's physically grabbing on him to trip up. This is round two, where he actually steals his birthright. Birthright has to do with physical, financial benefit and gain that would, that would come to him. Um, and, and again, in the, in the ancient world, we know this is the very ancient world. We don't have knowledge of exactly how the birthright thing happened. We do know later... Um, Basically, like if you had 12 kids, you would divide your, um, all your stuff up, but your oldest would get two twelfths. Everyone else would get one twelfth. Does that make sense? It's probably not good math. I know some, someone's probably saying that that doesn't work. Might not. I don't know. I'm not good at math. But so uh, the more children, the more it's kind of dispersed. If you have two kids, one gets one third, the other gets two thirds. So that's either what's going on, or it could be in this ancient world, there's some evidence of it that. All, almost all of it would be going to the oldest one here. That's what's going on here. So now we see Jacob cooking stew. The question we have to ask is, is that normal activity? It's actually not. If this is a large family, um, Jacob would typically not be doing this sort of thing. You, you would typically have servants who would do this. Because I don't know about you, every time I've read this passage, I'm always like, he sold his, is this the stupidest person in the world? Like he sold his birthright for a, I don't even like soup that much. He sold it for soup. It just seems like dumb, right? It, 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 like it just seems like, why, why, why would you do that? But likely what most commentators say, the fact that he's cooking soup, they're probably not in their home. 
They're probably out in the fields. Jacob's probably with some of the herdsmen. And Esau has been out hunting. So they're miles away. I showed you that picture of the map. He has been out hunting for days. He doesn't even have anything. Apparently, it wasn't a good hunting trip. He's, you ever go, any of you hunters, and you come back, I've got friends who are hunters, and they come back, and they're just mad. They didn't catch anything. He's probably come back nothing to eat. He's been gone for days and days, and he's still a long ways away from home out in the desert. And he stumbles upon Jacob. Stumbles, interesting. Stumbles upon Jacob, who happens to have enough water to have made soup. So that's probably what's going on here. So he may not be sort of over I, I don't know if he's the drama queen Esau. I think he possibly literally might be on that, it's like Survivor Man, and he's on that last, and like I said, there's no water out there. I've, I've been there, it's, it's rough. So he comes upon and literally apparently is gonna die. So he says, okay, I'll fine, I'll give it. I'll give it to you. So this is the second round where, where Jacob is um, tripping him up, deceiving him so supplanting him. There's a um, humorous poem about the situation written by Janine Stegg. It's entitled Twins. It says, Esau said, I'm feeling faint. Ah, said Jacob, no, you ain't. Papa's blessing, Esau cried, is mine by rights, but I'll have died. Of hunger first, for pity's sake, my birthright for your lentils, Jake. Your birthright, Jacob murmured, sold. Dig in before it gets cold. (laughs) Both hunger and exhaustion make one vulnerable to manipulation. And that's where Esau is. Um, oftentimes, I've, I've talked to people who are in crisis moments in their life. Um, things are going on, and they have to make decisions. And I ask questions like, how are you sleeping? I'm not sleeping hardly at all. Are you eating? No, I don't have much of an appetite. What's your anxiety? It's through the roof. I have to make a big decision. <laughs> it's the worst time to make a decision in life. When you're coming up to big moments of decision-making in your life, literally ask questions like, physiologically, what's going on? Am I fed right now? Um, Am I experiencing stress? What is my sleep level like? When we're tired, when we're um, exhausted, again, I think we're vulnerable to manipulation from the enemy, from others, from our own foolish thinking. So chapter 26, interestingly, takes a break from the boys, <laughs> um, and, it, and it goes back to the second patriarch, Isaac, their, their father, and because of, in fact, can we put that map back up if we, if we have it close there? So remember, they're in that area there by the first red dot next to the, next to the Dead Sea. God tells Isaac, don't go to Egypt. This becomes a common theme with the Israelites. Don't go down there. <laughs> don't go there to look for food. He says, but go over to Gerar. That's the one over by the Mediterranean Sea, the one real low on the bottom left-hand corner. This is where the Philistines are. And so Isaac actually goes and lives with the Philistines and almost in a way of forecasting what's gonna happen, it says that God blesses. Remember, it's about blessing. Fan, uh, land family blessing. God blesses Isaac so much there that the, that the Philistines start to become ultra-intimidated. Ultra they're worried because there's this foreign people group there who are just growing and amassing so much. So there's like, which remember, that happens to them later on in Egypt. That's the Exodus story. And so they say, just get out of here. They don't try to kill them and enslave them. They just say, leave. So they have to leave and they go kind of in various different places around there, and there's a bunch of disputes over wells. Every time Isaac digs a well, these Philistine guys show up and they like throw 
junk in his well and rocks and stop it up and all this sort of thing. He finally makes an agreement. Okay, we'll come to a covenant. You stop, I'll stop. I'll leave. And then chapter 27, it gets us back to the story of the boys. And chapter 27 is the third round of manipulation. First round was the grabbing the heel. Second round was manipulating his exhaustion and potential death to get his financial birthright. The third one is now over the family blessing. Remember the land, family blessing. This is over that piece of through whom is God going to continue that line to bring back what was lost on page three. So here's the setup. Um, we're, we're told in chapter 27, it says Isaac is old. He thinks he's dying. It, kind of ironically, he didn't die for years. He died like 10 years before his son did. So he lived a long time after this, but he apparently thought he was dying. So he, he calls in his oldest, Esau, and he says, I'm going to give you the blessing. I'm going to give you the family blessing. And, you know, right there, we're like, is he being, like, does he know about that oracle back from their birth? Is he old and his mind's not clear and he forgot about it? Is he just being disobedient to that? Is it just the favoritism? We don't really know. The story doesn't really tell us. But um, it is kind of odd that he does it alone. Typically, you'd have the whole family. Maybe he's not thinking clear he's old. Maybe he's trying to do it in a covert way. I don't know. But he calls in Esau, and he says, I'm going to do it. But hey, give me one last good meal. You know I love your barbecue. Go out, get something. You know, get some venison. Bring it in. Cook me your, your, that food. And then um, I'll give you the blessing. So Esau goes, done. So Esau goes out. Well, Rebecca, the mom of Isaac, it's hard to keep secrets and tents. She probably, she like heard. She like listened to what was going on. And, and now remember, who does she favor? Jacob. So she runs to Jacob and she says, okay, I got an idea. You're gonna go in and act like your brother. And he's like, that doesn't seem like a very good idea. He goes, no, 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 I got it all done. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do the culinary stuff. I'm gonna go cook the meal. I know what he likes. I'll make the meal. And then I'm gonna dress you up like Esau. So they go into like Esau's coat closet or whatever and get some of his clothes and put it on him so that he's gonna smell like him. And then remember Esau is red and hairy. So they actually, it just blows me away how apparently how hairy the dude was. They go and get a goat skin and like wrap it on his neck and on his hand, like his arms. So can you imagine being married to someone who was as hairy as a goat? It seems like it'd be hard to get a date. That'd be really hard to get a date. And so he, he goes in there and, and, and shows up. And in verse 18, um, so he comes in. And verse 18, we read this. He went to his father and said, uh, my father. And he says, yes, my son. He answered, um, now here, here's the key question. This is getting us to the point of tonight. What's the question he asks? Yeah. Who are you? What is your name? What is your name? Jacob said to his, now think about this. this, you know, this he's saying this to his blind, dying father. He's deceiving him. He's a creep. I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Now Isaac asks the first question, and it's a logical question. It's a question of logic. The timing doesn't make sense, he says. So he says, uh, how did you find the game so quickly? And then Isaac actually employs the use of God to deceive. I mean, that's how bad this guy is. He says, uh, Yahweh, your God, 
gave me success, he replied. Then Isaac said to him, then he uses the sense of touch. He used logic, now he's going for touch. Uh, Come near me so I can touch you, my son, to know whether or not you are really my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father. He touched him, apparently the the goat. Um, And he says, yeah, okay, that, that works. The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. So he proceeded to bless him. Are, uh, are you really my son Esau? He replied. Who are you? He's asked twice, real clearly. And he said, I am. Then he said, my son, bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Jacob brought it to him and he ate and he brought some of the wine and he drank. Then his father said to him, this was his last test. It was the, it was the test of smell. When you're, when you're blind, sometimes your other senses are heightened. He, he, his, his ears are probably maybe decent. He knows the voice doesn't seem right. And so he says, come here, so, um, come here and kiss me. So he went in to kiss him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, this is a guy who lives out on the fields. His clothes would have a certain smell. His father, Isaac, said to him, um, uh, 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 he, he, he blessed him saying this. And then verses 27 through 29, here's, here's the blessing um, of Isaac to Jacob. It comes in three parts. Verse 27, the very first part, is a statement about what Jacob is. He says, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. That's what you are to me. You are blessed. He's, you know, this is a, this is a guy too, screwed up, messed up is. He's probably never been really loved by his dad. And he's hearing words that he probably wished he would have heard before. Uh, number two, verse 28, it's a statement about what he will receive. Jacob says, may God give you the heaven's due and the earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. And then uh, verse 29, this is the third statement, and it's about his relationship socially and politically with others. He says, may the nations serve you, the peoples bow down to you, be lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, here's the blessing thing, and those who bless you be blessed. And Isaac has unwittingly spoken the truth. Um, he, do, he, he does not know that he's been tricked, but neither does he know that what he has spoken is actually a prophetic utterance of what is going to happen in his life. And so Genesis 27, um, you know, he's, this is when he's, uh, uh, he, he tricks his dad. Now, he also knows he has a timing issue. So Jacob leaves the room and I don't know if the author intends this to be there, but it, you know, it's, like, it's like on the heels of that, Esau comes in. Here's that heel thing. It may be there, it may not, I don't know. But on the heels of Jacob leaving, Esau comes back, and he says, Dad, got the food, let's do it. And he goes, who are you? And he's thinking, you know, he's probably thinking, oh, Dad's going downhill. He's not remembering stuff. It's me, your firstborn Esau. And it says, Isaac just began to shake, and he says, well, then who was it that came in to me earlier and took my blessing? And then all of a sudden, it all comes home. And Esau's like, and he says, he is rightly named Jacob. He is rightly named heel grabber. And it says he he weeps and he clings to his dad. And he's like, don't you have anything left? Is is there any thing left of a blessing that that you can give me? And his father answered him, um, basically, no, 
I've given him the blessing. And then he, the only thing he can say to them is, is he gives them a statement. He says, your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness. Remember, this is the inverse of what he had said to Jacob. Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of the heavens above. You will live by the sword. Uh, you, you'll be a marauder. Um, you won't have peace is the idea. And then you will serve your brother. That's that reference to in the future. But when you grow restless, you will throw off his yoke from your neck. We know that the Edomites in the future tried to revolt against Judah multiple times. Finally, after the kingdom was kind of you know, destroyed, they revolted and did throw off the yoke. So Esau, uh, it says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Meaning, you know, I'll, he's gonna die. I'll, I'll mourn for him. He says, then I'm gonna kill my brother. Wow. Now, uh, another question. We, in the Western world, we, we, we hear that. We think, well, can't he just reverse the blessing? Just say, oh, sorry, you tricked me. It's invalid. No, not in the ancient world. What you have done in the presence of Yahweh, a statement made in that way, this is a legally binding experience. It would be the same as, as actually signing, a, you know, our concept, signing a document, notarized, witness, like that's how secure this is. It's not just that he's like, well, I made a mistake, I'm gonna live with it. He did this formal legal thing of giving him the blessing and he's pronounced it in <clears throat> Yahweh's presence. So Esau plans to kill Jacob. The mom hears about it. She goes to Jacob and she says, you gotta get out you got to run. You have to go back to my dad's place. Um, or you have to go back to where my parents live. My uncle's there. So he, he runs and, and he leaves and he goes to this man, Laban. You remember, he, I think he was on the, see on the sheet there? Um, Laban is his uncle. And he gets there in long story. Basically, the mom says, go there for a short period of time until he gets over it. Well, if, if you've read the full story, you know, she said, Early on, he was worried, man, if I do this, dad will curse me. And she goes, I'll bear the weight of your curse. And she starts to live in the weight of that curse because she doesn't see her son. He's gone for 20 years. He's, he's not able to come back after a short period of time. He goes there and, and he, he meets Laban, his uncle, and very quickly falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. And he's, man, she's beautiful. And he says, I'd like to marry her. And, then, and Laban says, absolutely, love it, great idea. If you, if you will work for me for seven years, you can marry her. So it said, he worked for her, and seven years seemed like a few days because of his great love for her. Oh, that's so romantic. That should be in a Hallmark card or something. And so seven years are done, and he's like, okay, give her to me. And he goes, okay, let's do the wedding. They do the wedding. I have no idea how they did the wedding that this happened. But he wakes up in the morning in the honeymoon bed, turns over and it's the wrong girl. That's a little awkward. It's like hangover 2.0. And, and so um, he realizes I've been, I've been deceived. I've been, I've been supplanted. Someone has tripped me up. <laughs> Interesting. Do you see what's going on here, what the author wants you to see? He is ex someone is now doing to him what he has been doing to people his whole life. So he goes to Laban and says, you've deceived me. And he goes, oh, did, didn't I tell you about our custom? Oh, yeah, it's her custom in her country. The older girl has to get married first, so I, of course you're going to marry her, but I just had to do this first. You know? So he's completely deceptive. He, he, he out-deceives Jacob. So he says, of course you can have her, but now, now we're talking two girls, different price. Oh, 
seven more years. And he goes, okay, so he doesn't have to wait another seven years. He gives Rachel to him at that moment, but he agrees to work. So he works 14 years. He's there for a long time. And what he starts to see is God starts to bless him. Does he deserve it? No. And that's what's almost frustrating as you read this. It's like, why is God blessing him? The guy's a creep. And yet God's blessing him and his stuff is multiplying. He's a shepherd and he, he, he's, it's like no matter what Laban does to try to trick him, it, it doesn't work. You know, he says things like, well, you can have all the sheep that are, that are spotted, um, but I'm gonna move all the spotted ones away and you can only mate the, you know, the, the plain ones. And then the ones that are born are spotted. And Laban's like, oh, for crying out loud. You know, like I, I, I can't deceive this guy enough. So he's there for a long time finally realizes, man, our relationship is going south. It's really sour. The way he's treating me, I'm worried actually for my life. So he flees. He gets his two wives. He gets his children and the maidservants, and they kind of take off the middle of the night. Laban doesn't find it for like three days, but Laban gets on his horse and starts going after them and catches up to them three days later. That's at the Jabbok River or near that. In fact, if we can put that uh, map back up there. So the, the highest one on the right, it's near there. <clears throat> he, he gets to that location. He, he catches up with them. They have a long conversation. They basically make a covenant agreement on, okay, we've both done some things. We're going to kind of call it you know, quits. And, and uh, again, they make a covenant. He leaves. Well, he knows to return. Gosh, it's been 20 years. I wonder what my brother thinks. And he knows he's going to run into his brother on the way back. And so he actually prepares a message ahead of time. And so he, um, he sends, gets some of his messengers, and he says, a bunch of stuff, a bunch of really nice stuff, because he's been blessed. Bring it to Esau and say, hey, your brother's coming back. And he wanted to give you a gift. He's trying to appease him. And so the messenger goes, he comes back, and he comes back. He's like, what do what, you say? What do you say? And he goes, uh... He's coming out to meet you. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's got 400 guys with him. Oh, he's got 400 guys? Well, why, why would you bring 400 men with you, you know, somewhere? So he knows, he's, I'm dead. I'm dead. And his life has just been one hair thing after another. So he goes, okay, I, I, I got to do something. So he stops at the, at the stream of Jabbok. And he stops there and he says, okay, I'm going to send um, all of these things in front of him, so that like I'll send all a bunch of donkeys and a bunch of and and that'll be like one wave, and then I'll send another group, another wave, and then some of my people in another wave and another wave and all this stuff, and hopefully, and each time he tells each wave, each time you get to him, you say, hey, this is a gift from your brother, and then the next guy, hey, this is a gift from your brother, hey, this is a gift from your brother. So hopefully, by the time I get there, he's sort of like appeased his anger, you know, after all these years, and then he's left and he just has his intimate family with him, and he says to lay in Rachel, his favorite's Rachel, favoritism. He says, Rachel, you stay furthest back with our kids. Leah, stay a little bit further back <laughs> with our kids. And he says, and I'm gonna go ahead. I'm gonna be that last line of defense. Hopefully you guys get away. So he crosses the river while it's late at night. And so he says, I, I guess I'll camp here. He's not coming up yet. And there's really, in Genesis 32, this gets to our question for tonight, chapter 24, it says, so Jacob was left alone. And let me just pause there for one second. Jacob desperately wanted the blessing of God his whole life. He, I would suggest for many of us, you know, I want the, I want the voice of God. 
I want intimacy. I want closeness. And yet, I don't know if I'm ever in this scenario. So Jacob was left alone. Because I get up and I'm really quickly, like, I'm on, I'm on Twitter because I want to catch, see what happened while I was sleeping. And I'm looking at that and I'll send a couple texts and check my calendar and then see, see am I having lunch today? And, and I jump in the shower and then I get in the car and I put on my podcast that I listen to. And I'm, you know, I can get through a whole day and I'm never just alone. I'm never quiet to where God can't even speak to me. But Jacob, maybe for the first time in a long time, he got to that place. And it says he was alone. He's alone with God. And there's this weird, weird story. And all of a sudden, in this time of being alone, it says a man wrestled with him during the night, meaning a long time until daybreak. Weird. When, when the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And the man said, let go of me for it's daybreak, meaning the sun's gonna be up. So it's, it's dark, you can't see. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless what? Unless you bless me. Then the man asked, and here it is. <laughs> now you'll find out something about who this man is. He's not just any ordinary man. The man asked, this is a familiar question. Hey, what's your name? Typically don't wrestle with people. You don't even know their name. So he, he, why did he ask? What's, what's your name? See, his grasping a deceit came at a cost in Jacob's life, right? The most fundamental, what should have been the most meaningful relationships in his life were devastated because of his deceit, because of his being a Yaakov, that his most cherished relationships, his father's relationship, his own brother's relationship, his uncle's relationship. And he's asked the question, what's your name? What's your character, Jacob? What's your identity? And I wonder if he, if, if like he looked deep inside of himself at that moment and just hated everything that was there. Gosh, hate everything about who I am. My, my posturing my scheming, my lying. But he answered. Now, he was, he was asked this question 20 years ago by dad. What's your name? And this time he said, it's, it's Jacob. It's the schemer. It's the striver. It's the supplanter. It's the usurper. It's the liar. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but it will be Israel. This is one who wrestles with God or holds on to in that sense, like grasps, holds tight, <laughs> that, that concept, holds on tight to God. Why? Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. He's overcome, but he lost his hips at a joint. <laughs> yeah, because in God's kingdom, you, you win by losing. Jesus had some things to say about, about that. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then it says, then he blessed him there. I don't know what he did, but he blessed them there. And it says, uh, Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw, what? The face of God. And yet my life was spared. You can't see God and live. Somehow, and we don't have enough time to talk about it, <laughs> 
this person is the expression of God himself, a what sometimes people call a theophany, and a physical representation of God, or maybe even a Christophany, a representation of Christ before his incarnation. Throughout so much of Jacob's life, he had all the trappings that declared sort of the, he was the family beneficiary, right? He had the birthright. He now had this blessing. He had the land promised him. The one thing he never had was the blessing of God. It's the one thing he didn't have. And I guess I would ask you guys this. Are you in a place in your life where like you are pursuing and striving for, it might be like a relationship. Man, if I just had a relationship, if I just had my, you know, my Rebecca <laughs> or my Rachel, if I just had this job, if I just had that, man, I would be so content in life. And what you're really maybe missing is the blessing of God in your life. Because it doesn't matter what you find and achieve and get. I've, I've heard stories of people who are in Hollywood and they will say, I know some of the most successful people and they're some of the most miserable people because when they finally achieved and got what they thought would make them happy, they were still themselves. They were still Jacob. <laughs> and what you need is a new name. You need a new identity. Because the identities the, that we have fashioned for ourselves are super destructive. They just are. Mine is. <laughs> I need a new identity. I need a new name. Otherwise, everything will be like this. Long story. He gets up the next morning. He's worried. He walks forward looking for his brother. And we read that um, he... Now, think of how Esau last him 20 years ago. Here comes Jacob. He's limping. He's beaten down. He's humbled. And it says he came to him and he's worried and he doesn't know what's gonna happen. It says Esau ran to meet Jacob, embraced him, threw his arms around his neck, kissed him, and they wept. Wow. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> and they wept. Hebrews 11. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's son, worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. See, the only way that he could get to that place, so much screwed up stuff in his past, was, and I don't think it was a one-time thing, but was by his identity being changed. And so what I want us to do, we're running a little over, I apologize. We're gonna real quickly just take communion because communion is an act of identity. I am in communion, I'm, I'm consuming something that is my true and core identity. That's what's going on in communion. And so during this, we're gonna take just a couple minutes, have some music, come and grab uh, one of the crackers. There's gluten-free in the back. There's a couple different stations around the room. And on your own, you can take it. You can take it right there. You can go back to your seat and take it or find a spot in the room and take it. But I want you to ask the question as you're doing this, an identity question. I want you to ask the Spirit, I want you to ask God to ask you, what is your name? And if there's, if there's not a real solid, I'm a follower of Jesus, we say Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus. That's my identity. Then maybe, maybe you need to do some wrestling with God about your identity.